where are you? I am in Toronto, Canada. All right. And yourself? Uh, I right now I'm in, at my in-laws' house in Monterey Bay area. That's yeah. nice. Yeah, yeah. Toronto. Uh, Toronto gets really cold, but uh, knock on wood, it's been three weeks. It's been pretty nice for us. You know, it's been it's been like zero degrees, and we haven't had a major snowfall in like almost a month. So so far, so good. I think there's a big storm just south of you, right? That's coming through, but you're you guys are missing it. You're right? gonna missing it, yeah. Yeah, we the, even last week there was one um that hit the eastern part of Canada, Nova Scotia. They had 150 centimeters of snow. Um yeah. <laughs> like all, all the way, like you open the door and it's snow. <laughs> you know, your car cars are buried underneath it. And they do get something like that every four or five years, anyways, but just because they're right on the eastern side of Canada, so the far, far east of North America. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm a naive Californian, so I know nothing about that. <laughs> where, where where are you from originally in California? I grew up in LA. Um, LA. And uh, and then went to school in the San Francisco Bay Area, where, where I now live. Um, live our whole adult life up there. So. Okay. Fun. Yeah, yeah. Enjoy. Yeah, no, I... I I love San Francisco. I, I don't necessarily come to the downtown much often, uh, yeah. but more in the Redwood City, Santa Carla or San Mateo and San Jose yeah. and all that stuff. It's South nice. Bay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice. Well, good. Uh, well, you know, uh, thank you so much for working on Masters of the Year. One of the things that is, I mean, everything in, in any project or any series is so pivotal and important. But I think talking about Masters of the Year, the most important part for me was, and a lot of people, because you see all these discussions where some people are not happy, but majority of people are happy, are the visual effects, right? And to me, I, I was, I've talked to um, Captain Dale Dye, who was the consultant. I've talked to Colleen Atwood. I've talked to Richard... Rutowski, I think his last name is. He was a cinematographer. Itowski, yeah. Itowski, yes. And uh, uh, one of the editors, Spencer, and I'm speaking to a few other people. And w in one of those conversations, I talked about the visual effects very briefly, just to kind of give you a little bit my perception, and then we can go into the conversation and the questions. Is that what I loved about the visual effects was no matter where you are in the plane, Right. And it's a very tight space when you're flying it. And even if it's a model and you have all these windows right on the front and on the kind of halfway on the side, mm -hmm. you would see every intricate detail from a cloud, you know, to a smoke, to a plane flying by or a bunch of planes flying by, which was great. But the one that stood out for me the most, which I was like, wow, like this is like amazing. And it's a very simple thing. There's a scene in one of the episodes where the plane lands into a field. Yeah. And you see the fields like just through the rear, the side window, just flickering back and forth, back and forth. Now, I don't know if it was, you know, real or if there was like some sort of um, um, bushes okay. that kind of just set it there. Yeah, like a reference point. But yeah. it still looked amazing the movement, the way the plane was landing and moving. It, I, I was just blown away by that. That, to me, defined the visual effects of the entire series. So I just wanted to make sure that I mentioned that before you begin. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. We just as a sort of a how we approach the work, um, everything interior. Uh, so if you're um, we had 
we had a you know a B17 set, but we broke it up into different compartments. So if you're we had a, like a nose and a cockpit compartment right. set. Uh, we had a, a a waist gunner compartment set. We had a tail gunner compartment set and a ball turret and top turret to, as individual sets. So that made it more manageable in terms of how to shoot the actors. Um, but all of that was typically 99% of the time was put up on a, a motion base of some sort. Now I can talk a little bit about what those were on a Please. state. And so the, the, for example, you had the the cockpit and the nose compartment on a um, 10 ton motion base so it was a six axis motion base if you can imagine so it could it could um, tilt roll pitch um, as well as as well as uh, twist um, and heave and so forth so um, it it allowed us to have a lot of um, uh, interaction in terms of the, the flying sequences from generic you know just flying vibration um which is a subtle thing that i think a lot of shows miss out on um you know it certainly helps the actors in terms of feeling like you know they're in this massive um uh, aircraft that that has this vibration if you've ever seen you can go onto youtube and listen to some of the um you know the the coverage that they've done or, or see some of the coverage they've done of flying real p17s it's 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 just giant shaky structure right there's just just this vibration and this sound this droning sound that happens and so starting with sort of the baseline vibration you know culminating to action sequences where they're having to to be they're being attacked by flak um so for example if there's a if there's a flak explosion off the the port side pilot window um the motion base could react um to that explosion so it mm. Actually, buffet the plane. So then the actors react, and then um, simultaneously you had all this stuff that's dangling in the background, moving. You know, so there's not much that's really dangling, but you do have things like oxygen tank um, cables and so forth that you see move when that when they jostle and so forth. So that adds a lot of element of realism to their performances and and just you know the general look of it. But all those all those um sh shots in in across the nine episodes that we shot uh interiors were all done on the stage with the motion base against a giant led wall and um we chose to do that um um uh, just principally because it it makes for a more cohesive performance again culminating to that and i can talk about that in a second but just to answer your question coming back Everything out the window was ultimately com computer generated. So um, we didn't have the we didn't have the ability to go. I mean, as much as we really wanted to, um, it's just not realistic to to take a real B seventeen up in the air yeah. uh, these days. Yeah. You know, not just for cost. You know, if, if people think about the insurance. You know, if you're putting a whole crew on a B seventeen, if God forbid something happens, and of course, there was that calamitous accident that happened at the Dallas air show right. um, not too long ago. Um, things like that, that just say, you know, we're just going to do the sets interior and then everything outside will be visual effects. So when you see, um, you know, the bell, it's the, you're, I think you're describing the belly landing scene where uh, yes. Brady coming in and he's, he's descending very quickly adjacent to the runway, um, which is what they did. They, they had these big open fields, um, and they would just slide essentially to a stop. Um, it's quite dramatic. Um, 
that's all computer generated. So he, you know, we have one shot you might re recall where it's sort of a, a the co-pilot's POV. He looks out at the at the Thorpe Abbott control tower and some of the ground crew that's down there getting ready to to rush out to them. That's all that's all fabricated as visual effects. So we we would um, jet we fabric we created the whole Thorpe Abbott environment and placed it into the shot. So all you're seeing that's traditional um, shooting, you know, photography was the interior environment and then everything out the window is us. So coming back to the the LED, um, what what allowed the actors to really sort of lift their performances were um, just that we had a proxy version of Thorpe Abbott. They could they could see you know that we ultimately replaced everything um, most of right. it, not all of it actually. Um, but if you're looking outwards towards the window. Um, and the camera's looking out that direction and you see the control tower, uh, let's say you're over the shoulder of a, of a pilot, um, we usually replace that and that's all computer generated, but the actors had uh, the benefit of uh, a proxy version of that environment. Um, so they could see, oh, there's the control tower. Oh, there's the field. Yeah. Oh, when they're up in the battle, you know, oh, there's a there's a BF-109 coming straight at me. I can see it and there it goes. And you know, all the eye lines work and the interaction. The, the interactive light explosions, you know, and, and so forth. So it it sort of elevated again the the realism of the performance. Um, you know, so that 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 was the main impetus. Traditionally, prior to that, it was uh, you know, blue screen or green screen work, um, which yeah. you know, made for really nice mats for visual effects, but um, you know, didn't make for a great performance from the from the from the actors. You know, it's usually like you probably have seen this. It's oh yeah, yeah, some geek like me holding an eyeline pole saying <laughs> BF one hundred and nine. You know, <laughs> kind of like with a with a pole and a tennis ball at the end of the stick saying that tennis ball is your plane. Follow that. You know, <laughs> oh, it's coming at you. You know, it 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 didn't it doesn't make for the best performances. So you know, having the wall being able to project, you know real proxy planes coming at you and understand, you know, where they are spatially. And again, the interactive light, it also made for, you know, the camera composition to be that much more realistic because the, you know, the, the camera, the, the people operating the cameras could understand, Oh, there's a plane. I need to pan left and catch that, you know, as it, as it swings by. So it, it, it really helped a lot. Anyway, I'm rambling. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. This is please don't think that it's amazing. The information that you're giving, um, it's awesome because being in the industry myself, and I know that how, like you know, one thing I I don't know if an average moviegoer notices it. I I certainly do. I know friends who do who are in the industry. Is that forget about visual effects? You know, there's a there are movies out there, a lot of movies where you sh do pick up shots of two characters interacting with each other um, without the other one even physically there because of schedule conflicts, right? And yeah. there's a prime example of, uh, there was a movie came out in the late 90s, I think, called Red Planet with Val Kilmer and Tom <laughs> Sizemore. You, yeah. you know, but and how there was a whole story that Val Kilmer and Tom Sizemore really did not get along with each other. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. they filmed all of their scenes yeah, separately, and yeah. I mean, it shows. It literally shows when that that chemistry of physicality is not there, whether it's the or your another character or the physical space. 
like you're talking about, it yeah. comes across on camera. I, I, I notice it. I'm sure you notice it. I don't know if an average moviegoer notices it, but it's so evident. And I'm so glad that you guys did what, what you did with this because having that you know eyeline and that reference point is so pivotal that you, you can tell. You can tell in a snap. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with fast moving action. Right. You know, so, you know, you, uh, you know, an FW 190 is like here in one second and then another second it's over here or, you know, so you, you have to, there's no way you can recreate that physically, certainly um, with an eyeline pole or something, or even just telling the actors look fast, you know, they're never looking in the right place. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, we made it easy for them and they, they loved it. You know, it was, they gave them perfect opportunity to, to just act and not try to imagine what is going to ultimately be out there, you know, nine months from now. Yeah. So tell me about this. So, you know, you said most of it, what was outside the window, if not all of it was visual effects that were the, the, the LEDs were the proxies, right? Um, so in the sequences where you see other planes coming in or, you know, gunshots or whatever, in the sky, the clouds. They were on the LED, right? But in order for them to be LED, they had to be created. Yeah. So how was that sort of workflow where you guys had to figure out from a storyboard standpoint that we got to create these shots, these planes moving, you know, on the sides or coming in or the fire coming in and then making sure that it's again replaced by something similar, if not the same thing. Yeah, it. I mean, it, the the general workflow for visual effects is pretty typical throughout. But um, for me, I, I'm a big previs guy. So, um, you know, what it always starts with the scripts. Certainly, in this case, we had this amazing, um, these amazing tome essentially of scripts and historical references from John Orlop. Um, so he gave me. Um, he has a he has a, a research Bible that he created. It's like 250 pages long or something like that. Wow. Uh, so I, I had this baseline to start with, um, you know, because you, you imagine you're coming into the show. It's funny because I, I I'm sure I'm going to get grief about this. But, you know, growing up, I was a kid. I was a cars kid. You know, you, when you're when you're growing up, you're either like cars or airplanes. And I was a cars kid. Of course. Yeah. I had to learn everything about airplanes as quickly as possible. So, you know, this was certainly the baseline for for historical references and you know what what were the, our 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 characters in the in the in the in the in the series um and how do you know how do they interact and and so forth so john's research bible was 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 you know critical for that then his scripts um and then of course you know the the original book um from don miller don, yeah um, and then you start reading other online stuff. There's a, there's an amazing wealth of information online that you can find. And we had, we had some great researchers, uh, you know, helping us. So if I needed to know, okay, how, you know, what was the strategy in 1943 for, um, the Luftwaffe attacks and how did that change once they became, once they started using, uh, rockets and, and, um, and then as the war progressed, um, the formations changed with the B-17s and, you know, what was the, you know, the, the baseline formations they started with and how did that evolve and so forth. So there, there was a huge um, learning curve for me at the beginning. And, and that, so once I got all that, then, yeah, you go into, you go into storyboarding and, 
that's usually done with the directors and some you know extraordinarily talented storyboard artists and they're they're drawing out sketching out action based on what they're reading in the script so you know plane flies from a to b uh character reacts you know maybe there's an explosion or whatever so you're 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 drawing out the storyboards um and and basically blocking out the action uh for that and most of the time we're doing storyboards just for action we're not necessarily doing it for drama you know or generic yeah dialogue. yeah so there's no, there's no need for that but it's just choreographing action um once we get there and the and the and the director's happy with that i take it and i sit down with um a, a previous company in this case it was the third floor and i had um i had the the benefit of working with a previous supervisor named matt matt smart and he 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 happened to be a pilot um and he understood you know, plane aerodynamics and um, big World War II junkie. So he was thrilled to to get into this. And so we would sit down with the boards and we would step through them and talk about each sequence and how to, how to you know, approach things. And he would then wade into it with his team um, and then start blocking the action, bring it back to me. Sure. We'd talk about it, we'd review, I'd give him comments. And then once that, once those sequences uh were pretty fluid and we were happy with you know the action and in terms of that what we were looking for principally was you know not just being historically and technically accurate um but also just fun to watch i mean it's it's you know this is you know an issue i think you see with a lot of shows um where they're so focused on being technically accurate but it's a big yawner in the end when you're when you're trying to watch it you, you, you kind of have to really think okay this is like technically correct, but it's kind of boring. So how do we elevate it so that it's fun? Um, and so for that matter, I think we stayed, I would say 98% true to the technicalities of, of these battle sequences. Occasionally, yes, we would take creative license. And I can talk a little bit about that. And sure, you know, I, I'm sure there are people who will are going to go and pound me on it. Um, but um you know, I it, like I'll, I'll give you an example. We had we had uh, some great technical advisors on set with us. One guy, Ty Ramey, he was he was superb, and he he actually runs a, a B seventeen bomber camp. So you can you can go. It's in California. You can go to it uh, his website, and you can go for a, a long weekend and fly a B seventeen and shoot, you know, fifty caliber guns. It's 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 a lot of fun. Oh wow! He he was there with us, and I remember it was like probably the first week he, he comes up to us, Stephen, whatever you do, Hollywood always gets this wrong. The front of the engines never catch on fire. And he's like, he's like, you know, really intense. Okay. Okay. Ty, I got it. I got it. We can't, you just, that there's no fuel there. There's nothing to catch on fire. I mean, technically you probably could, there could might be a little bit of oil or something like that, but it's for the most part, it's not this big, you know, inferno on the front of the engine. Anyway. Um, not more than a week later, we we were in a shot and um, we were we were doing a scene and there's a shot where we're over a pilot's shoulder looking out at the engine, um, and of course the director's like, "What are we looking at? You know, let's make it turn, make make turn, make it go on fire." <laughs> so <we're> like, Oops. <laughs> so it's you know it's those situations where you know you're you're composed for a shot with 
a pilot who really is only seeing the front of the engine. You know, they have the prop and the front of the engines. And you have to be showing something. You can't just show, you know, a little bit of fizzling smoke or something like that. You have yeah, to, yeah. You know, Dramatic. It calls for some action or some, yeah. something fun to watch. So so I would say 2% of the time. So anyway, I, I don't think it's going to stop Ty from like throwing something at the screen when he sees it. But <laughs> he'll, he'll, he'll go, I told him, I told him. But we tried to, we tried to remain true most of the time. But um, anyway, um, so once we get the previs worked out um, and the, you know, we will sit down with the director and we'll, um, you know, they'll give their comments on the show. We had, uh, it was nine, it's nine episodes and we had, we broke it into what we call four blocks. So there were four sets of directors. Um, right. And um, in the actually block two, um, we had a, we had a, a directing uh, cup, uh, two directors we had um, Anna Bowden and, and Ryan Fleck directing two but other than that there were just single directors on the other two other three uh, blocks and we'd sit down with them and we'd go um we'd go through the previs they'd give their notes I then I'd take those notes back to the to Matt and we'd sit down and we'd we'd you know make some corrections and adjustments and then you know, basically it's just the normal back and forth creative uh workflow so right. we got to so the point where they're happy and then at that point the, that work gets distributed to the departments. So stunts, special effects, uh, costume, makeup, they're all looking at this now going, okay. Uh, and they understand what their part, what they're, what they need to do um, in order to, to, to uh, address uh, the action in the, in that previs. And then all of that was then projected on the, the led walls. So we brought that into unreal engine um, mm. and Lux Machina, um, Lux, we, when, just to step back, when we started the show, there was no like virtual production stage um, where we were going to shoot. Um, this was in uh, north of London uh, in some old converted warehouses. So um, so Lux came in and designed the, the LED volumes. We had three and a half volumes, I believe. Uh, the half volume was actually a, a mobile one. We could move it around. Um, and... Uh, so they designed it and then they came in and managed uh, the shoot. So we, they would take the previs, ingest it into Unreal and then um, play it on the wall. Um, and the the beauty of working on it with Unreal is that the DPs and they, they love this is that they could they could come over and they could do all their lighting in Unreal uh, dynamically. So as we were setting up shots, you know, you're in a you're in a very cloudy environment or you're a sunny environment. They could position the sun wherever they wanted. They had a big explosion. They could cue it however they wanted based on um, how what they were shooting at the moment. So the director could go and you know explosion, and 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 the Unreal operator could then um, add an explosion, which would give interactive light to the actors. So it was all again all proxy content out the window, but um, it made for that you know that sort of realistic. Um, uh, um, look and and it was highly interactive it was all real time so um it it i think again it comes through in terms of production value for when you watch the show um but yeah i mean there, there are little things that we had to think about um in terms of making that commitment to doing the led walls one was um because we weren't shooting a green screen uh matting became a problem right so we we had if you think about it it's not just 
for people who are familiar with matting, you know, you're just layering it, uh, the world behind things. So if I have the cameras over my right. shoulder, I need to art, create a mat that then sits the outside world behind me, not on top of me. So you have, you're able to articulate, draw a mat. Um, we used, uh, we used some AI tools actually now that were, that could say, okay, we understand what the structure of the B17 window frame is um, from any angle. And from there we can generate a mat. Um, and uh, it, it, it gave you a pretty good start to it. You'd have to go in and clean up, but there are things that people don't understand is like, you know, you have people right up against the window. So you have the reflection and it's not just this, it's this, right. It's the reflect it's, it's their reflection of this side. So it right. meant that we had and also put the reflect you know, the window reflections back into the shot in order to make it look like there was a pane of glass there. Otherwise, if you didn't have that kind of stuff, it would just look transparent and clear. It would look like there would be no window. Um, so things like that, that, you know, we made that commitment just because the perform we really wanted the performances to be that much more dynamic, um, to not use green screen or blue screen. Um, and I think it paid off. Yeah, no, it 100%. And I really hope, I mean, all this, the stuff that you've talked about, you know, again, this is just a small percentage of people about anything in life. We're always complaining about something, you know, when Masters of the Tra Air trailer came out, there was online, there was like, well, the visual effects look crappy and this and that. And, you know, until you see the series and you understand that that's not the most important part, it's a story, but also understand that how it was done and yep. the challenges that people people may understand that. So I'm glad you're talking about this. And you know, while we're talking, I there's this uh, somebody put, uh, sent me a question on on Facebook uh, on a group. Uh, his name is I don't know how to pronounce it. So his name is Piotr, I think. And he asked me something. I think you asked me. You answered me already. So I'm going to read the question just so I know that you have answered, and you can tell me if you have to. If not, then you, maybe you can address it if that's okay. Sure. Yeah. So me. he asked. He he asked, can you ask how the shots were designed and how, and as John Arloff mentioned, the visuals projected on the volume were simplified for actor reactions and reflections, how the foreground and cockpit shots were separated from the background for the final FX composition, didn't use green screens when using volume. Thank you. I think you answered that, right? Yeah, I'll try to summarize the answer again, but it's it's basically, we, we used... The proxy content was the previs essentially from that we generated from third floor. So that gave the 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 opportunity for the actors, the camera lighting and so forth to react to what was happening outside. Rather, if we had a green screen, you would never see any of that. Again, it would just be like me with a, a tennis ball and a stick, you know, running around going BF109. And it and you know, it it just would have looked much more detached. Um so yeah, it was, and and then how it was replaced was uh, again traditionally when you're matting, you're, you know, you're you're rotoscoping, you're drawing um, edges around the thing that you want to put content behind. So if the camera's here on me, um, it's gonna you want to draw a mat that's you know an articulate edge, a very perfect edge right around down my shiny head, down my shoulders, and so forth, um, and that creates a mat that then keeps me in front of whatever you're going to layer into the shot. Um, now, you know, long ago that used to be drawn hand, you know, hand by, you know, frame by frame by hand. Um, as we started using computers, we started to, uh, the computers 
you, we could do all the in-betweening with the computer. So you could draw, you know, if I'm moving from here to here, you could draw the starting and the end position and then the computers could figure out all the in-between frames. Now with this, this AI Roto um, tools we have, um, we're letting the computer start to figure out those key frame positions. So, you know, if, it, if I'm starting here and I'm moving here, it could, it looks at those, those frames all as one sequence and, and, you know, with, you know, the algorithms that are pretty smart, they, it will understand, okay, I need to draw an articulate map for this. And it, it gives you, it gives you 95% of that. Um, it's not perfect, but it saves a lot of time. So there's still some handwork that has to go into it um, to start layering. As far as the reflections go, um, we had, um, we had CG versions of the actors. Uh, so I scanned them all and then we would do uh, CG versions of them. Um, in some cases we use them as, uh, you know, the camera uh, would actually see them, you know, for example, when they're falling through the sky, you know, jumped out, jumped right. out of an airplane. Parachutes. Sky yeah. and so forth. Um, but for the most part, for like reflections, they would just be um, animated to move, to match the actor's motion. So again, if the actor went from here to here, we would do the CG version of that person moving from here to here render it from a from the reflection reflected angle you know the incident angle to the to the where the camera is looking so if it's here the reflection is going to be you know exactly the opposite of that position um and so and then layer that in at a at a reduced uh, opacity essentially partially transparent um element that then would be layered on and it, that gave that reflection so if you understand what i'm talking about like yeah yeah reflection of something you're not seeing it's not completely opaque you just want yeah. to get a sense that there's something there. And that, that gives the sense of the window frame, you know, that there is actually a glass there. We also added scratches. You'll see that there's subtle like scratches and pitting on the window. Um, that helps a lot too. Yeah. Yeah. No, thanks for answering that. And yeah, it's, it's uh, again, what you just said is something I've been kind of saying all over and over again, the detail, the attention to detail is so important in, in any project, but specifically with this, you know, and one thing I wanted to ask you, um, kind of moving away from B-17s, now I don't know if this episode has been aired yet, so I don't know if I can even remotely ask you in detail, but um, just to kind of generalize the the sets of uh, POWs, right? Were there any visual effects used in that sequence to kind of expand the view yeah. of those places? Yeah, I'm. I'm glad you asked about that. <clears throat> um, we. It, it was interesting. If you if you think back, um, when I started on the show, January of twenty one, uh, we were, COVID was, was just really getting bad, right? Yeah. And, um, I moved to England to start prepping for this, and uh, the UK had done something interesting where they, they, they decided, okay, we're gonna. We're going to try to make a go of this. We're going to, um, there's going to be all these protocols. You know, you have to wear a mask. I mean, e every day was, you know, wake up, answer something on the, on a website that says, no, I don't have a temperature. No, I'm not achy. And then you'd show up at work and you'd walk up to the security guard. He would take your temperature uh, and then say, okay, you're good. Go get tested. You get tested a PCR test. Um get your red wristband and then go sit in your car for an hour and a half waiting to, to get the, wow. go to work. <laughs> so just a quick digression to explain my answer. So you're, 
you know, it's, it's, you know, you're showing up at 6am to, to just start work, you know, by 738. And, you know, they, you get the text and you can okay, come get your green wristband and then you can go to work and you're wearing a mask all day and you have um, COVID, we had COVID minders, you know, this team, COVID team that would, you know, COVID if, police. <laughs> yeah, it's COVID police, we call them. Yeah, exactly. And, it, and if you got too close to somebody or you're having a conversation, or, you know, the, the tendency is to pull your mask down a little bit and it's where you're, you're trying to have a, a deeper conversation and they come over and, you know, reprimand you. Um, but we, it worked. I mean, people got used to it. Um, it. Certainly there were the occasional outbreaks and and delays and so forth as a result, but it worked. And But what it meant was that um, if you think about Europe, the rest of Europe being completely shut down, we we had the intention originally to go on location and shoot a lot of these environments and or, or build ex more extensive environments. So um, that was all off. So the art department, you know, basically had to pivot and and build, you know, sets to whatever they could, um, you know, was reasonable schedule and cost wise. And so in the case of like the Stalag, the POW camps, mm. um, they built four barracks. And then so when you see everything beyond those four barracks, that's all visual effects, um, including people. So we had, um, you know, it's not just the environment extension, rodeo effects did all those, all that work, and they did a really good job with it. Um, so it's all, you know, visual effects extension, um, with, with digi people populated into the background. Um, yeah. but there were a lot of other people will see again, just going back to the, the extraordinary production value, we were really intent on adding to the show and it's not just visual effects every department just yep. bringing hundred percent. Yeah. But we we had all these locations that we needed to to build out. You know, if you you'll see episode four, um, there's a shot, there's an establishing shot over. It starts low uh, um, all across train tracks, and the train goes by. Yes, and it, it, the camera booms up, and it's Paris, big establishing shot. That's a hundred percent CG. So that if people look at that, they go, it's just, it's phenomenal. It's not, we couldn't go to Paris and shoot a shot like that because of COVID. So we had to just create it. Um, I tried, I, I spent a lot of time, we had scouts going across like Eastern Europe. Maybe we could, you know, get a piece of it or something like that. And then finally we just said that we're just going to have to create it. So the train, the tracks, the, all the background cars, the people, and the Paris um, terrain, including the Seine, the sparkly water, uh, it, it's all computer generated, done by Whiskey Tree. They did, they, they so those kind of environments. You, you'll see it later um, in some of the German villages that we're, we come across, um, and even a German city that we come across, which is you know has very recognizable um, uh, features to it. Um, uh, people will, rec you know, people anybody who says World War II will know you know, what the, what city we're happened to be in. And that's, that was all fabricated in, in the case of the, the actors moving through, they just built a, our department built a little set and then we would extend out from there, put the whole city around it. Uh, so there's quite a, quite a lot of environment extensions um, that we had to create um, just for the sake of not having the ability to go on location, but still wanting to, you know, maintain the production value you know, not just staying in, you know, a handful of environments like so many shows end up doing. Yeah. And and again, one of the things that you see on TV series or even films 
where the visual effects might be really, really great, but just somehow, whether it's the camera movement or whether it's the interaction of the characters, you you feel that it's not real. You feel that it's kind of like, um, you know, for the lack of a better word, fake. But again, I, I don't know if it's my bias, you know, be, being a fan of Band of Brothers or Pacific and Pacific and, and a Spielberg fan. It's just it did like that that train sequence that you're telling me about. I while you were talking, I was just like, holy crap. Like I it didn't even seem like to me that was real. I felt it was real. And that that's an amazing thing to achieve because and that's at the same time quite a scary thing. Because what's going to happen in the next 10 years, imagine, right? Like, do we really need anything else? Everything is going to be all visuals. Um, <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't know about that. I think for me... I'm just, I'm just saying, right? <laughs> it really goes towards, you know, I think, you know, the, that cinematic expertise. Yeah. Um, I, I had the benefit of coming up, you know, I started, um, I started as an artist and I, I spent many years... Um, lighting and composing shots and um we, i had the benefit of working a lot with steven on sh on a number of shows um and he, he the, the 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 i think the biggest takeaway i had or i learned from him was grounding the camera learning how to you know offer the perspective that the audience understands it's not you know too often these days because it's a computer generated effect uh, you get these magic camera moves that are, you know, flying from A to B in you know 0.3 seconds, and and you you the audience sees it and they they kind of go and and they accept it, but they don't they don't understand why it looks fake, and it's it's usually because of that because we're we're there's a sort of the subconscious betrayal of the laws of physics, you know, there, it's just not physically plausible to yeah. achieve this stuff. So if you you know what Steve, what I learned from Stephen. And I, I try to impart on throughout this series is figuring out how to ground the camera. So, you know, whether you're inside the, the B-17 or you're stuck to the outside of it, you're attached to it. Um, or your point of view is if you have to do a geography shot, it could be shot from another plane looking down um, or looking across. It's, it, it's, it has to be like physically a physically plausible camera position and, and moving at a, at a physically accurate um, speed. So all the cameras that we have are, you know, the planes are moving at the correct speed. The B-17s are flying, you know, anywhere from 150 to 180 miles an hour. Typically, the 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 German fighters are coming in at the correct speeds, you know, 300, sometimes 400 miles an hour. Um, so there's there's the the all the accuracy of of speed and composition follows that, you know, that grounding position of like okay I, I if i were really there i could understand that action um, and sometimes it's just a quick flash and that's okay it's like that's what would really happen you know you, you only have a split second to see something and that really is the point of of um i think those air battles when you when you you know you see a lot of other shows where you know there's there's fighter planes coming and you know, you're on it for five, six, seven seconds, you know, here it comes, here it comes, here it comes, it's still coming. And there it goes. And it's, it's like that, that just doesn't happen. They're just like gone in an instant. So for us, it was like important to make sure we, we were physically grounded the camera. We were physically accurate with our speeds and, and, uh, and then the composition is just a reaction to that.
Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned uh, Steven's uh, approach. I mean, to me, there's very handful of directors who know how to use visual effects properly yeah. in the film. Spielberg being one of them, probably the, the pioneer, I would say. Um, and then Christopher Nolan is another one. I mean, he more so uses practical effects, sort of Spielberg. But there's this that integration and marriage of real elements versus, you know, computer-generated elements. We saw that in Jurassic Park, the original one that first came out, like yeah. where you see the full-size dinosaurs, CGI, but anything else where you don't see it in full-body shot, it's animatronics, right? Whether it was a T-Rex or Triceratops. But uh, but yeah, no, um, and and it, it, again, like it's just an amazing achievement that you guys have made. And, you know, I I really enjoyed the series. I've been looking forward to it for a long time. And having to see it and just feel the excellence that went behind it. Um, it, it from everybody, from Colleen to yourself, your team, to directors, to John, everyone. It's just, it shows. It clearly shows. Thanks. It. I think people are starting to see now as the as the as the episodes come out that it it's it keeps getting better. Um, it does. You know, one it and does. two were sort of a necessity in terms of like laying the framework so the audience yep. understands and so forth. So. Um, it was a, it was probably the most quote unquote generic of of it, but then you know you're starting to okay you're introduced a lot of characters, and now you're trying to get into you know their heads basically following on and understanding the the their fear and and their what their their sacrifice essentially that they're making, and then and then it you then you're in it from three onwards you're you're now on this ride with them and and I would say by episode nine people are going to be really pleased. It's, it was oh they, they they will be and for me and this is not trying to take one episode better over the other just for personally for me episode seven eight and six were the best like i like that's where the plot really gets interesting uh, not that it doesn't before characters become really like you're attached to the characters way more the stakes yeah. are high um and obviously you know the episode nine was so beautifully done as well um i wanted to talk to you about uh, just briefly you mentioned i think a gentleman's name was tyler who has his own b17 right hi ty, ty ramey yeah ty ramey yeah. i i would love to have talked to him about <laughs> <laughs> so he was He's around he was... i think if you google like b17 bomber camp i forget his exact website but it's it's in stockton california you'll see it how far is Stockton from um, San Francisco? I'm going to be going there in a couple of weeks. I'm just wondering if I can, not that I know how to fly, just even go to the camp. I think it's about an hour. Okay, so, so that's not bad. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. No, I'll, I'll, I'll read. So he was a as a, a consultant in the beginning of the series, or yeah, yeah. He was there. He was with us from beginning to end through the shoot. Um, so he was there on set with us every day. You know, and, and you can imagine, you know, the. The myriad of technical questions it's like we that that's again one of the great things about the show is like okay the sequencing for the the dialogue between the pilot and the bombardier in terms of you know now they're on their 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 bombing run what's the what are the steps the processes and just you know making sure that they're flipping the right switch that they're setting the there's you know they're setting the speed correctly yeah. And then they're handing over the aircraft to the to the navigator. The navigator is actually flying the plane at that point. I mean, the, sorry, the navigator, the bombardier is actually flying the plane at that point. Um, 
so just, you know, Thai is very key to helping us understand that, the little idiosyncrasies. I remember him, you know, I, pretty much every week I'd like, I'll go, Thai, tell me about cow flaps. How do cow flaps work? You know, and, you know, you, you see them open when they're taking off, but it's like, okay, when do they open that? Well, it's, it's right, you know, when they do the pre-flight check, they, they're, they're going through all their routines. And so it's like, okay, well, at this point, they need to be open until they take off and then then they pull them back you know and so it's those little subtle technical details that he was key to yeah yeah and speaking of learning did you what did you learn about world war ii that you did not know before um and also about b-17s like do you have any interest in maybe going to the bomber camp and and trying to learn <laughs> how to how to fly one Oh yeah, I I I mean we had there were there are some B17s in the UK and we we were very much wanting to get up in there but they, the production wouldn't let us for insurance reasons. <laughs> yeah, like, of no, course. You can do that after we're done shooting. <laughs> but, so you do uh, know how to fly? Do you know how to fly? No, no. They they okay. you can uh, but they we we wanted to experience it. So there there oh, were Oh, just by the pilots. Yeah. So um but I'm still very keen now. I mean, it, it's interesting because I know pretty much every little detail of a B-17F. Um, the Gs are, I'll I can talk about that in a second, um, but the our principal aircraft was the F model. And, um, you know, to, to what we, we built to model, full-size full size model versions of them to use mm -hmm. on, on the airfield so they could taxi around and park on a hard stand and so forth. Uh, they had a little electric motors attached to them so they could wheel around, but they were not, they were not airworthy. They, they couldn't, they couldn't fly nor move past, move more than really 10 miles an hour. Um, but anyway, um, um, I, 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 I would love to go, go up and I mean, Ty is always like, you know, come on out and, and do it. So now that the show has come out, I, I would love to to get up there and and fly one for real. There's there's still still some airworthy ones out there, so I'm I'm anxious to do that. We did when we were shooting. I I did make a point of scanning the some real B-17s. So I scanned the real Memphis Bell, um, and um, there are actually some some um, what do you call them uh, Easter eggs that I put into the into some of the shots. If people look carefully in episode four, um, I put Piccadilly Lily in there, uh, which ah. she was actually in the, um, she was in the hundredth and um, she's in the background. It was, she wasn't a featured aircraft um, in our, in our series, but, you know, because she's such a, a famous uh, plane, I, I, I put the original Piccadilly Lily because there were, I think there were multiple since, um, but all the, all the serial numbers and and uh, ID, you know marking IDs that were on the plane they were all technically accurate i had a i had a there was some guy who wrote a book that has lists every single plane their serial number all their all their markings so we were very methodical about getting that so i challenge anybody to find a, a mistake in there um <laughs> okay but you might be able to spot piccadilly lily as a result of you know finding the serial number if you know what the piccadilly lily is so you go that's it that's her yeah anyway no, no, that's that's good to know. That's awesome. Uh, you know, your your credentials are incredible. Um, something that I always talk about in the beginning of an episode, but we just dived into, 
you know, master of the year really quickly and organically. Um, you know, I, I tell me if I've got this wrong and IMDb just because I'm kind of going over it. Like, you know, you worked on films like uh, Terminator 2, Avatar, uh, Jurassic Park, of course, um, Hunt for Red October. And, you know, Indian in the Cupboard, I remember as a kid, that was a huge thing for me. And one thing, one one movie that came out that I st I gotta watch again. And now that I I just it just reminded me because looking at your IMDb, Snow Falling on Cedars, like that. Oh, yeah. I remember I remember watching that, and I just don't. I honestly don't even remember now what the premise was, but I remember the visuals, and I gotta see it again, and I gotta talk to you about that again eventually if if you're up for it or other films, because that would be really really cool discussion to have. I'll tell you a funny story because you're a Canuck. It's like there we, we went, we shot this the snow falling in cedars in, in interior BC. And uh, we did a scout like in December. I forget what year it was, um, but it was like perfect. I mean, you, you're like, you get there and everything's like crystalline white trees are just laden with heavy snow and the streets that the little town that we shot in Um Greenwood, I think it was Greenwood, BC. You can look it up. Um, great bakery there. Um, and uh, we were like, "Where's the cameras? We need to, you know, start shooting." Anyway, we we came back a month later to with the, with the crew, and there had been no snow. If you imagine January in Canada, there was no snow. That's like total anomaly, right? That's this. That's this year too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we we were like, you know, it's just one of those moments where the whole crew is like, we arrive at this town, and it's like there's not a speck of snow anywhere. And, you know, you could see all the producers sort of simultaneously spin and turn and look at me and go, Steven, <laughs> can you help us here? <laughs> so when you see the snow, I mean, the, the foreground snow was all practical. They brought in artificial snow for like yeah. you know, close up shots, but everything extended beyond all the following. Everything was all visuals. <laughs> it became its own character in the show, but a good it, it is beautifully shot. It, Beautifully shot, great characters, great story that I don't remember, but I remember that it was great when I saw it. Um, but yeah, no, amazing. I mean, your your work is amazing. It speaks for itself. Um, you know, thank you so much for working on Masters of the Air. Not that you know you you did it for anybody, but you know, just for the story. And the fans absolutely love the series. People are talking about it online, and it's just. It's amazing. And I, I would love, love to chat. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I would love to chat more if you have time down the road for any of your other projects. It'd be amazing sure, happy, to have. Happy to do that. Yeah. Great. Anything else you want to add? Um, no, I mean, I mean, for me, you, you touched on something a moment ago about, you know, what motivated me. Um, and, and it, you know, it was interesting, like for, for me, again, I hadn't, I kind of had dabbled a little bit into World War II genre in, in, on, a, on another project, but really this was the first deep dive into it. Mm. And I think that for me, and I think this resonated a lot with, with the crew, is as you get into it, you start to really realize, you know, how terrified these people were, how scared, you know, there was just fear was a huge factor in it, but yet they still did it day after day. They got into these planes and they went out there um, and it sort of, to me, it, it, it established something in my mind that, it, which I think is kind of timely actually for our, our, you know, what's going on in politics and so forth in the world where it's just like, 
the element of sacrifice, you know, knowing that there's something more important that's worth sacrificing, you know, basically setting aside your fear, your anxiety about things and, you know, for the better, for the common good, you know, that it, that it's important. And I think that, that, that was something that really resonated with me is like, these guys really, I mean, that you hear the term sacrifice, but you don't really understand what it is until you, until you really start to witness what they went through. And then you ask yourself, well, why do they keep going? And they, they really, they realize because it's, it's for something bigger than they, than their own self-interest. And, yeah. and I, that, that that's something that I think really motivated us, dro drove us um, in terms of producing, um, you know, the best work we could. So it's amazing that how everyone I've spoken to has pretty much said the exact same thing, that how that motivated them to produce the best work they could. And then, and, you know, it's going to what you were saying, it's about, you know, the camaraderie that these people have, not just in Masters of Air, just World War II itself and or any war or any army it's about the man next to you right like yeah. that's who you're fighting for and I think yeah. that attitude of um, selflessness is that's yeah. where you probably get I don't know um, yeah, my dad served in the army too he never talks about it but that's where you get that that motivation that it's not about me maybe it's about the cause or for the good but it's also mainly about the guy next to me because I know this guy really yeah. really well yeah yeah Great. Thank you so much, Stephen. Appreciate your time, man. We really had a great time and thank you for all the insight. Well, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Talk soon. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for watching and listening. Don't forget to subscribe, like, share, and comment. And do come back for another episode. Until then, have a great day.